Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and ad-free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. It would come as no shock to anybody who watches this channel that I'm a fan of renewable energy. I do think climate change is real, though I may not be as doom and gloom as some other people. I see fossil fuels as sort of a necessary evil to get us to where we are right now, but it is time to transition to some more sustainable energy sources. You know what I'm also a fan of? Facts. So I can sit here and pump my fist and talk about how renewables are better than coal in every possible way, but that wouldn't be the facts. And that wouldn't make me any better than the Koch brothers. So I set out to make a video that looked at renewable energy sources as objectively as I possibly could to try to find some real solutions toward a cleaner future. I wanted to explore the pros and cons and get real about what works and what doesn't. And all those details added up. The shiz got long. So that one video has now turned into a three-part video series exploring seven different renewable energy sources, starting with today's video on hydroelectric and geothermal. All right, so sustainable energy, renewable energy, what exactly are we talking about here? For the purposes of this series, I am defining renewable energy as A, something that never runs out, and B, doesn't need to be extracted. For example, a lot of people put nuclear in the clean energy category because it doesn't release any pollutants and it doesn't have any carbon emissions or anything like that, but you still have to dig all that uranium out of the ground and then put the nuclear waste back in the ground, carefully. So I'm not gonna address that in this video, although there are some persuasive arguments about nuclear that I might need to address in a future video. Also, just a little caveat, because I can see the comments coming already. I'm not gonna count materials that need to be extracted to build the infrastructure and the equipment needed to harness the energy. I'm just talking about the fuel source itself. And that leaves us with the following energy sources. Solar, wind, geothermal, wave energy, tidal energy, hydroelectric, and biomass. I'm gonna break down the pros and cons of each one of these energy sources. So if you're into renewable energy, Hope you got your party panties on, but first, a little cold water. The global yearly consumption of electricity in 2016 was 21,191 terawatt hours. And that keeps getting bigger. And last year, the total amount of energy produced by renewable sources? 5,000. We've got a ways to go. So our energy sources can be divided into two camps, intermittent, and base load energy. The base load is the minimum amount of electricity needed to keep a community's lights on. Base load energy sources need to be stable and flexible, something that's always generating energy but can be increased if there's some kind of spike in the grid. And that's why coal is so popular. You can burn as much of it as you want and if you need to increase it, just shovel some more coal into the plant. Coal is kind of like nature's battery. It stores sunlight captured by photosynthetic organisms millions of years ago, and when those organisms died, they collect together and with time and pressure and heat, get transformed into coal. And then we can release that energy by burning it. So for a renewable energy resource to be a base load power resource, it has to either be something that's always generating electricity, or you have to be able to store that energy in some kind of storage mechanism so that it can release it during intermittent periods where it's not producing energy. But the two most stable renewable base power load sources are Hydroelectric and geothermal. Hydroelectric is the use of moving water to turn turbines that generate electricity, usually through the building of dams or pump stations on rivers. And hydropower is kind of the king of renewable energy, making up 70% of renewable energy around the world. And for good reason. It's kind of the perfect energy source. 
It's stable but flexible. If you need to add more electricity to the grid, just increase the amount of water that goes to the turbines. They're cheap to run and maintain once they're built, and they're 95% effective at turning energy into electricity, as opposed to coal at 33% and solar at 15%. And of course, they create no pollutants, they use no fuel, and the water never stops flowing. The Three Gorges Dam in China is actually the largest energy-producing plant of any kind in the world. It actually creates 100 terawatt hours of energy a year all by itself. So yeah, hydro is kind of perfect. The problem is it's location specific. If you don't live near a large river, you're not gonna be able to use it. Luckily, most cities are built near rivers, but not all rivers are big enough to be able to justify the upfront cost to build something like that. Which is also a problem because while they produce cheap, almost free energy for decades and even centuries to come, Dams are huge engineering projects that cost a lot of money up front. By the way, the whole expensive up front and then free for decades thing is a common theme amongst renewable energy. They also create reservoirs and lakes that flood a lot of land, and those landowners don't always want their land to be underwater. So every hydro plant is just a bird's nest of legal and engineering challenges to overcome, but even still, the number of hydro plants in the world is supposed to double by the year 2050. So the next base load power is geothermal energy. Geothermal uses heat from natural geologic hotspots to turn turbines that generate electricity. Iceland and the Philippines are major leaders in geothermal energy, which can be used to power giant plants that power entire cities, or you can just pump it directly into people's homes. It's a consistent flow of energy that never runs out, but the efficiency isn't great. It only runs at about 12% efficiency, which really just means that it takes a long time for the initial investment to be paid off because once it's turned on, it's just free energy. And some newer power plants have gotten up to around 20% efficiency. But even in Iceland, which is covered in hotspots and has a very progressive attitude toward renewable energy, only 30% of their electricity is provided by geothermal. So it's really not likely to become a major source of energy worldwide. And as if that wasn't enough of a bummer, it also turns out that geothermal energy can produce greenhouse gases. Geologic hotspots can turn up all kinds of stuff from inside the earth, like sulfur dioxide and silicon emissions. And it also produces heavy metals like mercury, arsenic, and boron. These can get in the reservoirs and eventually the water supply. Oh, and by the way, one of the methods they use to open up these geothermal vents is hydraulic fracking. Yeah, that hydraulic fracking. Yeah, let's drill down and inject really high pressurized water and chemicals right over a volcano. What could go wrong? Earthquakes. That's what could go wrong. Just like fracking for natural gas has started causing earthquakes in Oklahoma. Earthquakes in Oklahoma. A geothermal well that was drilled in Switzerland set off an earthquake that measured 3.4 on the Richter scale. Geothermal. Why do you hurt me so? I used to think geothermal was really cool used to. So let's talk biomass. Biomass involves burning or extracting energy from biological sources like plant matter, organic waste, and yes, wood. And while burning trees doesn't sound that green, it is considered carbon neutral because the carbon in that plant matter was already a part of the carbon cycle, whereas if you dig fossil fuels out of the ground, that was carbon that was sequestered away for millions of years, now being reintroduced into the atmosphere. Now there are a lot of different types of biomass, from incinerators that burn the material, to biofuel for transportation, to chemical processes that create usable methane, and they vary widely in their efficiency and sustainability. For example, plants that incinerate leftover plant matter from agriculture or lumber industries are just using waste material that would have been thrown away anyway. But creating biofuel from corn and sugarcane crops requires a lot of land and produces a lot of carbon emissions. One good thing about biomass is it's local. All of the material can be harvested from the local area and it doesn't require a lot of transportation to get it from one place to another. And just like coal, it's flexible. If you need more power, just throw some more biomass in there. And there's always more biomass to use. I don't want to brag, but uh, 
we're pretty good at producing waste. And while it's not the greenest energy source, it is a plentiful fuel that provides baseload power for local communities. And any communities, unlike hydro and geothermal, which are location specific, everybody has biomass that they can use. In fact, it kind of self-scales because the bigger a community is, the more waste they're gonna produce and then the more energy that we can get from that waste. Just creating a nice little resources loop. Now, if you live by the ocean, you're more than familiar with the rhythmic pattern of waves crashing on the beach over and over again, day and night. There's a lot of wave energy out there, but wave energy is kind of the weak sauce of renewable energy. It's a weak sauce because, well, we're still trying to figure it out. Much like hydroelectric energy, wave energy seems to have a lot of potential, especially for coastal cities, which some of the biggest cities in the world are coastal cities. So the idea is that the surface of the ocean is constantly bobbing and shifting all the time. So how can we use that energy to produce renewable electricity? I mean, it seems like a great idea. 71% of the planet is covered by this constantly moving and oscillating ocean. Harnessing that energy just seems like a no-brainer. Except nobody's really figured it out. There have been a lot of ideas that have been tested, but none of them have actually produced enough to implement on a large scale. In fact, the most efficient wave energy generators that we have right now would require 25 kilometers of coastline to produce one gigawatt of electricity. And estimates have placed the total worldwide potential for wave energy at our current technologies at only two terawatt hours per year. Every sentence that comes out of my mouth about wave energy is more depressing than the last one. So who knows, maybe some genius will come up with a good way to capture wave energy, but for now, Staying in the ocean, a much better solution is tidal energy. Tide goes in, tide goes out. Never miscommunication. You can't explain that. No, sir, you can't. Not without a third grade understanding of the solar system. Whatever magic causes the tides to roll in and out, tidal energy captures that energy and creates electricity out of it. And tidal energy is not baseload energy. It is considered intermittent. Even though it does go in and out constantly throughout the day, there are periods between the tides where it's not generating any energy. So they call it intermittent, but predictable. Right now, there are two types of tidal energy systems, tidal barrage and tidal stream generators. Tidal barrage systems basically build a dam or bridge over the opening to bays and ports where tides rush in twice a day and capture that energy as it passes through the structure, turning turbines in the process. Tidal stream generators are basically like wind turbines on the seafloor in areas where moving tide will turn the blades. There is, however, a third option that's never really been put into practice, but holds a lot of potential called dynamic tidal power. For this, we would build enormous 50 kilometer long dams that stick straight out from a coastline, forcing the oncoming tide to go through the structure and turn turbines. This would work especially well in areas where the tide travels parallel with the coastline, such as Southeast Asia and Northern Europe. There are a few projects in the works to test this out, but this would be a massive engineering project. The good thing about tidal power is that it happens every single day, nonstop, and it even works at low speeds. They also have very long lifespans. The first one that was built was in La Rance in France in 1966, and it's still working. The downside is that it's expensive, only works in certain areas, and the worldwide potential is only 700 terawatt hours a year. Again, we consume 21,000 terawatt hours a year, so it's not really gonna move the needle. But it can serve as a supplementary energy resource to the places that can use it. Whether that resource is enough to spur investments in those kinds of projects, We'll see. Legendary oil man T. Boone Pickens called the United States the Saudi Arabia of wind. And when you look at maps like this, it's easy to see why. As the Earth rotates toward the west, it slides underneath the atmosphere, which from our perspective gives it a general eastward direction. That eastward wind sweeps over the Rocky Mountains and then rushes down across the plains, creating one of the largest wind corridors in the world. And in the last 10 years, investments in commercial wind have boomed in the United States. Economies of scale have started to kick in and the price of wind turbines have gone down. 
It also costs little to maintain and operate and help create energy independence in smaller communities. And it creates a revenue source for local ranchers who lease out their land to the energy companies. And they're more space efficient. On the ground, they actually take up very little space, which means that those ranchers that lease out that land can still use that land for agriculture. Plus, it's a huge growth sector for jobs, currently employing over 100,000 people, and it's expected to employ over 600,000 people in the next 30 years. All good things. Wait for it. While the price is going down, they are still expensive and inefficient. And they work best in remote areas that require a lot of infrastructure to get that power into the cities where it's needed the most. The noises they make tend to bother some people and reportedly they kill around 400,000 birds and bats annually. Now in fairness, it should be noted that over 900 million birds die every year by flying into buildings. Is it just me or does that sound like a lot of birds? But the biggest problem is that they're wildly intermittent. Tidal energy, for example, is intermittent but predictable. Wind is totally unpredictable. Whole days can pass with no energy coming out of these things. So without a robust energy storage solution in place, wind is always going to be supplemental. And the worldwide energy potential for wind energy is 400 terawatts, which is impressive, but still supplemental. Now there are some ideas in place to use kites and inflatable turbines to get energy from the jet stream that's way up high in the atmosphere. That may generate a lot more energy, but right now those are just in the experimental phase. So right now, wind energy is a mixed bag. Economically, it does really great things, but it's still a ways to go and some technology needs to be developed in order to make it any, anywhere near a baseload energy solution. And all of that brings us to our final energy source, solar energy. Now there's a reason why I saved solar for last, because there's something different about solar, something different from all types of energy, clean and dirty. Photovoltaic solar cells, or PV cells, have no moving parts. All the other sources of energy create electricity by turning a turbine, either through using steam or heat or water or wind, but solar literally just collects the energy coming out of the sky. When asked if he was interested in fusion power as a source of energy, Elon Musk famously said that we have a giant fusion reactor in the sky just raining energy down on us every day. All we have to do is collect it. Now there are some negatives to solar power. Let's just get that out of the way. The first and most obvious one is there's no sun at night. So this is definitely an intermittent power source. But it's intermittent more like tidal energy than like wind energy because the sun is gonna come up every day. If it doesn't, we got bigger problems. And yeah, even in cloudy weather, it's still producing something. They also take up a lot of land. Unlike the wind farm that we were talking about earlier, if a rancher wanted to lease out his land to put up solar cells, there's nothing else he'd be able to do with that land. But you can use currently existing infrastructure like buildings and transport corridors. Now the big hangups for most people come in the construction of the solar panels because they do have some environmentally hazardous materials involved and some rare earth elements that need to be disposed of properly. And some PV panels require rare earth elements like those found in cadmium telluride or copper iridium gallium selenide, which is all the more reason to recycle the panels properly. Luckily, 96% of a solar panel can be recycled. Unfortunately, the recycling infrastructure is pretty small right now, but it's expected to blow up quite a bit in the next 30 years. But the one that gets the solar haters the most twisted up is the fact that it does produce greenhouse gases to make solar panels, specifically nitrogen trifluoride and sulfur hexafluoride. And yes, that sucks. But the argument that we should stick with coal over solar because of those greenhouse gas emissions is frankly absurd. Because with solar panels, it's a one-shot deal, and then you're getting clean, free energy for the next 20 to 30 years. With coal, you're constantly pumping out greenhouse gases that entire time. It can't even be compared. 
This debate was laid to rest by Wilfred van Sark of Utrecht University in the Netherlands. In a paper for the trade Nature Communications, he and his team calculated the amount of greenhouse gas emissions created by PV panel production all the way back to 1975 to see how long it would take before they made back their debt. They adjusted for the different processes used over time and for the different conditions that those panels were made in in different places around the world. What they found was that solar panels created back in 1975 created 300 to 400 grams of greenhouse gases, whereas solar panels created today only put out 20 grams of greenhouse gases. So panels made back in 1975 would take 20 years to make back their carbon debt. Today, it's only two years. That's both because they're producing a lot fewer emissions when they make them, but also because they're far more efficient. Overall, the clean energy output of solar panels will exceed the carbon debt of all solar panels ever made in 2018. Meaning after next year, solar panels will be a net negative source of carbon until the end of time. Boom. Now, whenever I've been able to find the information, I've shared what the worldwide potential for these energy resources are so that we can compare them against the worldwide energy consumption. And for the most part, they've been underwhelming. Whelming at best. But the total global worldwide potential for solar is mind-blowing. This is where solar really shines. <laughs> the amount of sunlight that reaches the Earth's surface every day is over 3 million terawatt hours. That's 142 times our global energy expenditure for the entire year. Now, of course, we can't cover the entire planet with solar panels, and we don't need to collect nearly that much electricity, so what can we actually do with this information? Well, let's math the shit out of this. All right, according to Wikipedia, 3,850,000 exajoules of energy reach the surface from the sun every year. That converts to 1,069,444,444 terawatt hours. Now, only 21% of the Earth's surface is land, so that comes out to 224,583,333 terawatt hours hitting the land. And according to the World Bank World Development Report, humans inhabit about 10% of the Earth's land, so that comes down to 22,485,333 terawatt hours a year. If we put solar panels on just 1% of that already inhabited and developed land, those panels would capture 224,583 terawatt hours per year. If you factor in an average efficiency of 15% for solar panels, which is getting better every year, by the way, we're generating 33,687 terawatt hours per year, 59% more than global electricity consumption. That's 1%. This is not impossible. Solar has its drawbacks, but it's easily the most scalable of our renewable energy resources. Not every place in the world has a river you can dam, or tides that you can use, or a crack in the earth that you can manipulate, or a lot of wind for that matter. But the sun shines everywhere. True, it shines more in some places than others, but it shines everywhere. But to me, the best thing about solar is it's something that you can do. You can't build a dam, you can't harness tides, you can't build a biomass plant, but you can put solar panels on your roof. And you can make money by selling that energy back into the electricity grid. Can't afford to buy them? There are leasing options where you can just pay the installation company out of the money that you're making by selling that energy until it's paid off. Live in an apartment? You can form what they call community solar gardens, where the other people in the apartment complex all pool their money together to put up a solar installation, and then you all split the profits from that. There are so many things in this world that we have no control over, and it leads to this sort of defeatist complacency. But this is something you can actually do. Now, because of the intermittency, solar is something that is just not going to be a base load power solution unless you have some kind of massive energy storage infrastructure. This is why Elon Musk created the Tesla Powerwall and the commercial power pack solution. It's the first step to a solar-based decentralized energy grid backed up by baseload carriers like hydroelectric and biomass and when necessary, fossil fuels. 
I didn't even mention the other type of solar energy, which is concentrated solar thermal plants. These are the ones that use hundreds of mirrors to heat up a steam furnace. And some people prefer this over PV because it doesn't have those rare earth elements and hazardous materials that PV does. CST plants have another little trick up their sleeve, which is they store that energy in molten salt so it can continue to make energy throughout the night when the sun isn't shining. But they aren't as efficient as PVs and haven't been as economically profitable as we hoped they'd be in the beginning. Now, what's really amazing is as much energy that hits the surface of the Earth every day, a whole bunch of it never even reaches the surface of the Earth. It gets reflected off in the atmosphere. So the Japanese space agency, JAXA, is working on a space-based solar power system. It would capture unfiltered solar power directly from the sun and then beam that down to a station on the ground through microwave radiation. So there's that. The energy grid of the future is going to be more decentralized and more diverse, which is a good thing. It's never good to have all your eggs in one basket. It's going to take a combination of all these things, wind, solar, biomass, hydro, tidal energy, to get us where we need to be. But it's the combination of all those things that can direct us towards a cleaner future. So I set out at the beginning of this series to be as objective as I possibly could. And honestly, my opinions did change a little bit. Now, for one thing, as many problems as we have with coal, I understand now why it works so well and why it's such a hard energy source to beat. I became a lot more disillusioned with geothermal and wind, but I was pleasantly surprised by biomass. I was already on board with solar, so that didn't change. But hopefully this gives a clear picture of the challenges with renewable energy, the places we need to work on, the places that are doing really well, what works, what doesn't work, and at least give you a little something to think about. Or you may disagree with me completely, which is always an option. And you can do that down below. And if you haven't seen the first two videos in this series, I'd definitely encourage you to do that. I will put up a link right here on the end screen. All right, now if this is your first time on this channel, first go watch those other videos and watch some of my other videos because if you like this type of topic, I do stuff like this all the time. So subscribe and see new videos just like this every Monday. Special thanks to the Answer Files who help support this channel on Patreon. If you would like to join them and get special access to a secret vlog amongst all kinds of other behind the scenes goodies, you can go to patreon.com slash answers with Joe. And as always, this video is brought to you by Canker Boy. If you get canker sores or mouth ulcers on a regular basis, this is a daily supplement that helps prevent them from happening. You can get a risk-free two-month trial at cankerboy.com. All right, thanks again for watching. Like and share if you liked it. Now you guys go out there and have an eye-opening week, and I will see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.